Thanks for pressing play. And I sure hope you're doing well. You know, I'm always curious what you're doing when you're listening. Are you out for a walk right now? Maybe you're in your car. Are you at the gym getting your uh, sweat on? Are you uh, doing some yoga, getting bendy, maybe doing some gardening? Whatever you're doing, I'm sure glad you brought us along. Today, a very special episode. By the end of this real dialogue, you will gain a new lens on how artificial intelligence is changing startups and venture capital. You'll gain a new way to think about both technical risk for startups and market risk, and how AI is atomizing software, and why, in an AI world, you must either be radically different or radically disintermediate something. Our guest today is my longtime friend, a man I've done business with for decades, Mike Maples Jr. He's the co-founder of Floodgate, one of the highest profile early stage venture capitalists, and his podcast, Starting Greatness, is one of my absolute favorites. If you're not listening to Starting Greatness, please uh, uh, search for it on your podcast app and hit that follow uh, button because uh, there's a lot of shitty business podcasts out there and Starting Greatness uh, stands out. And in Silicon Valley, Mike is actually a living legend. And uh, I think you're going to love everything about this podcast. You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. Podcast Magazine calls us the best business podcast. And there are reviewers out there who call us asinine and overrated. Whatever you call us, we are the Authentic Dialogue Podcast, or Oddcast, for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. Now, readers like you have made Category Pirates' uh, latest book, Snow Leopard, How Legendary Writers Create a Category of One, a number one bestseller. And uh, we're proud of that. Thank you very much. And I find it very interesting right now that a book about writing is a number one marketing bestseller, especially today, because we live in a GPT world where the value of existing content is decreasing and the value of new different content is increasing. And Snow Leopard is the first ever writing book written through the category design lens. In other words, it teaches you how to create radically different high-value content. So go to Amazon.com today and pick up your copy of Snow Leopard by Category Pirates. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. Why don't we start with AI, Mike? What are your better formed thoughts on AI? Okay. Well, to, to call them well-formed is, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's a pretty low bar. But well, uh, I'm not sure, given how fast AI is moving, I don't, I don't know if you can have fully formed thoughts about what's going on with AI, um, but because but, yeah. we're all learning so much every day. Yeah. So that's the, the, the so first order issue, right, is there's just an insane amount of noise. And it's literally every day, it seems like the thing that you thought was revolutionary yesterday gets made obsolete. And so what do you, what do, you do about that? Um, and how do, you even, how do you even make sense of what's happening? And so if I, if I step way back, um, I, I like to think about sort of how, how generations of startups happen. So like when I was an entrepreneur in the 90s and early 2000s, the, the primary thing that you funded as a startup was the takeout of technical risk. 
And so, for example, if I've invented a cure for cancer, there's no market risk for that. I'm going to sell that product because if, if I'm the only person who could solve that problem and I have a product, I'm, I'm good. And so um, in the early days of Silicon Valley, in the early days of startups, if I'm designing a router that's 10 times faster than the other guy's router, I'm going to sell that router because no router's fast enough yet. And so that was the traditional funding model of a startup is you find a team that has some kind of technology uh, know-how, domain knowledge, and then you say, hey, I'm making a bet that you can build this widget. Uh, and if you build the widget, there, it has to be the type of thing where there's no doubt that there will be a customer because otherwise it's a foolish risk to take. Like you don't want to take technical risk to build a left-handed smoke shifter because like nobody wants one. And so like why well, take- What is a left-handed smoke shifter? <laughs> I don't know. That's why they're, That's why you're never going to find one because there's no market for it, right? But, but like, so- so the idea was there are some technical risks where if you take it, if you succeed, you can assume that the market will want it as a given. In that sense, though, you're chasing the as-is category. You're, it's a better game. How do I be better by 5X, these other folks, so that people will move to me because my carbon dingulator is faster, better, cheaper? Sometimes. Yeah. No, no it's, sometimes. It's, it, somebody... it's a demand capture strategy. Yeah, or it was sometimes you create an entirely radical new thing, right? G DNA sequencing machine or, you know, you, you, there, I, I would say that um, when you take out technical risk, you can do it in such a way that you could create a completely new category or you could do it in a way that you resegment an existing category. Yes, for sure. Right, right. So, so, um, but, but like we'll get to category design in a second because of um, what, what I saw happen in the mid 2000s was, you had this thing called the lamp stack. So, you know, it used to be that if you wanted to start a startup, you had to buy Solaris servers, but now you could use Linux for free. You had to buy an Oracle database, but now you could use MySQL for free. And then you had Apache. So, so you had, you had basically a set of things that commoditized what was once expensive. And what I like to say is that the lamp stack was deflationary in terms of the cost of starting a startup. And so what does that mean? It meant that what you were funding was different because if Kevin Rose can start dig for $1,500 over a weekend, there's no technical risk there. I mean, he hired a contractor to do it that he didn't even know at the time. And so anybody, practically speaking, could have built dig. The question is who gets product market fit first with that idea? Because when you think about it, technology risk and market risk have an inverse relationship. You know, as we said earlier, if you can solve an impossible to solve technical problem that's valuable to society, there will be a market. Conversely, if you solve a problem that's easy to solve technically, it's all about who gets product market fit first. That's what you're funding, who gets product market fit first, because there's a whole bunch of people who can overcome the technical barriers of building the product. So um, that's where Floodgate came in. That's where YC came in. In the early days of Floodgate, what I would say is that 500,000 is the new 5 million and that um, technical risk isn't the risk. What we're funding is market risk takeout. And if, if, we, if we take out market risk, that's how you add value to the business. And so as we progressively take out more market risk, we'll escalate our commitments as we increase our certainty that we're getting product market fit faster than the other guys do. And that's when we talk to 
A16Z, Sequoia, Benchmark, all these firms, right? But it was it was a, a a startup model, lean startups and customer development. All those things really basically assumed a different context, which was um, in a world where technology becomes commoditized and innovations democratized. It's the it's the person that makes something people want fastest that wins, and that's why YC was so genius. YC was another way to play this trend because you could give a bunch of young people hundred thousand dollars in six months. And they they would either take out market risks or go away, but you could have increasingly large batch sizes and you know fund fund that model. Okay, so now let's come back to AI. I've noticed two things. Uh, one is the return of market risk, or sorry, the return of technical risk. I see projects raising a hundred million dollars because they need that much money for mass compute. They're they're trying to solve a problem that. Um, you need these incredibly large models for it. You need incredibly massive amounts of GPU capacity. And so the people starting these companies are basically saying, give me all this money because I have proprietary insight on how to build a model. And if that model works, it's going to change humanity. It's going to, it's going to, there, there, there's no doubt that there will be a customer for it. So that's at one end of the spectrum. So I call that big T technical risk. And then the, at the other side of the spectrum, I see big M market risk. I see, you know, these models are coming out every week. I see people being able to, to develop code faster. 40% of code that's checked into GitHub is now using Copilot. I'm seeing startups that are using AI to generate account lists and figure out which accounts are qualified leads, which ones aren't, what modules to sell. I'm seeing AI used to generate content for content marketing and outbound. I'm seeing AI used for customer service chatbots. And so I'm like, this feels to me like the lamp stack all over again. This feels to me like if, you know, like David Sachs talks about, say, your burn ratio in the early days should be 3x and should be heading to 1x. What if it, it should be a tenth of that, right? And what if, um, what if now content, code, and data are deflationary in the same way that open source software was? That changes your point of view about how companies ought to be built. And, and, you know, you could say some companies shouldn't be raising traditional venture capital. They should be trying to get to $50 million of revenue with like 10 people and less than $5 million. And like all these people who've raised billion dollar funds have all the wrong incentives to fund those companies. Well, and as a side note, uh, you know, Ted Dintersmith, of course. Sure. So Ted and I have thrown a very little amount of money at a what we both consider to be a high potential young entrepreneur with just amazing ideas. Anyway, with let's just call it $100,000. She is building right now what she th in her V1, what she thought would be her V3 that she thought would take 5 million bucks to build. Right. And so I'm sitting here looking at this stuff. And of course, she's not the only one. There's a lot of startups doing similar things. So one of the questions I wonder, Mike, is what's the future of venture capital when the cost to create a billion dollar uh, value company might be half a million dollars or less? Right. And it's and it, what I find interesting, Christopher, is sometimes I see it as a pendulum. Right. So that, like in the late 90s, you had ever larger venture rounds for startups and ever larger exits. 
And then in the 2000s, I remember when Last.fm was acquired for $270 million, if I, my memory serves me, like in 2006 or something like that, thinking that's huge. And so we went through a time, like there, the dot-com meltdown happened and, and expectations got reset. So you had capital-efficient companies raising less money and smaller anticipated exits throughout the 2000s. And then the 2010s, the pendulum swung back the other way. You had zero interest rates. You had ever larger rounds, ever larger funds, ever, and, and that was justified by the appearance of ever larger exits. If history is any guide, the pendulum is likely to swing back in the other direction. And it's like, I can tell you in 2005, when I would go to people and say, I think the right way to capitalize this startup is 500,000, people looked at me like, you have no idea what you're talking about. A company with $500,000 has no chance at beating a company with $5 million. But I was like, no, you're wrong. Because the company that raises $5 million, they're going to hire a traditional sales force. They're going to have a traditional waterfall development process. They're going to raise five on the way to raising 20 on the way to raising 50. And the, the option to exit to $100 million or $500 million or billion is no longer going to be available to them. They're going to have to play like they're evil could evil. And I'm like, the lean startup is going to be a better company because they're going to have to get profitable in less than a million dollars, right? So like, you know, I look back on the days Rick Barry at Demand Force, he got to like close to $60 million revenue run rate, consuming less than $2 million capital. And, and you know, I'm like, okay, when you get to that plateau, there's a lot of stuff you can do. You can go for it. You could try to be a $10 billion company someday. But like, if you raise tons of money right away, it's axiomatic that you can't have a modest exit. And, you know, demand force, Rick decided to sell early, but on a $450 million exit, we made 49 times our money um, because he didn't, he didn't spend any money. And so like, um, <laughs> I think that, that there's going to be more companies like that. And what I'm looking for is founders. This isn't just a technology strategy, not even a company building strategy. It's a philosophical mindset, right? Like, I want to find founders who say, philosophically, I agree with what I just heard right now. Uh, like, it's not just raise money to raise more money. And like, there are firms that operate on that playbook and can't change because they're structurally incapable of changing. They've raised too much money. Their whole business model is predicated on raising money to raise more money to capture a massive category and dominate it and have it be huge. But I'm not sure that that's how category design is going to work in the next five years, not for the winners. Um, I think the winners are going to be like, wait a second here. If if I can do mo massively more with massively less, why would I not want to play offense with respect to that trend? And so that's kind of, I, I don't know if I'm right about that, but I've been spending a fair amount of time thinking of that. It, it's funny. You know, of course, you and I haven't had this exact conversation. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And you know, the benefit of, of uh, earning some Obi-Wan status over time is uh, you, you've been around a while. And I was having a conversation with a young entrepreneur about this yesterday, this exact topic. So let me, let me bounce this sort of thinking on, on you. If you go all the way back to member objects and object linking and embedding and object-oriented oh, yeah. programming and all that good shit in the 90s, polymorphism and inheritance and all that yeah. all of that there's a whole language set of language most of which i now forget yeah so if you zoom out on that there was a theme at the time that said what's happening is 
the atomization of software, right? Mm -hmm. That we had in the mainframe days, you had these giant monolithic code bases, obviously giant monolithic machines, and, and, and that's what you had. And as we went to PCs and client server and the internet and the cloud and mobile, what do you have? You have atomization. And you have companies like, I looked at this a while ago, Linktree is a company, had a billion dollar valuation. Mm-hmm. And Linktree is a, is a shrunken URL that points to a landing page. I mean, yeah. if it's, and I don't mean any disrespect, but it's, it's pretty trivial technological risk, right? And so here yeah. you have a company that essentially is a feature of Twitter or TikTok or LinkedIn or whatever that's now been able to achieve that. So here's my question. Are we seeing a rebirth in atomization? That is to say, with GPT, auto GPT, people who've never coded or coding for the first times in their lives, you look at Zapier and the ability to create these zaps and all this sort of stuff. Are we getting to a place where what we're going to have is atomized small pieces of functionality which we will then assemble. And just to finish the uh, the sort of the, the thinking, if you buy a bike today and you buy it from specialized bikes, well, the reality is huge parts of what you're buying are not built by specialized. Right. The brakes are not, and a lot of the components are not. And so in, 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 in an interesting way, a company like Specialized is part technology developer and product developer but part aggregator and integrator as well. Yep. And so with AI, Mike, and with the fact that you can start a startup with almost nothing, I mean, the cost of uh, content and the cost of code creation is dropping as close to zero as we've ever seen it. And so are we moving to a place where people can build small pieces of AI functionality that can be assembled into bigger pieces and bigger pieces and or disassembled. And so we're in a situation where if you and I are two 20-year-olds banging around with ChatGPT and we come up with an idea and we make an atomized micro-use case piece of AI technology and start monetizing that, and then that becomes a subcomponent of somebody else's and so forth and so on. And so are we going to, I guess my point is, are we going to have a lot of micro-niche entrepreneurship? Yeah, so I think that there's there, there's a couple things, and some of it actually plays on some of the things I've heard in your prior episodes. But um, so to, to directly address your question, but then there, I think there's a couple of knock-on effects. One thing that AI reminds me of is in the early days of standardized parts in manufacturing. So like like, for example, your car and my car, we drive different cars. But I bet you that the bolts that fasten a wheel onto the car are exactly the same format, right? Why is that? Well, the world decided that's what a bolt should be like to fasten a tire. Now, maybe you could make it better. Maybe you can make it thicker. Maybe you can make it out of a different material. But like, why don't we just agree to put those arguments aside and just agree that's the standard? Because now we can make a trillion of them, right? We could make a tool of die, make a trillion parts. And from now on, every auto supply chain that's just how tires are going to be bolted onto cars, right? Or, or wheels, you know, rims, whatever. Okay. Shipping containers. I had this epiphany the other day. A truck was going under a bridge. And I was like, man, is that truck going to hit the, the top of that truck going to hit the bridge? I was like, shit, because I'm behind it. I, that, that could end badly for both of us. And it goes under the bridge. And, and it, it all hit me. Containers, shipping containers 
there's value in the fact that the dimensions are exactly the same every time, right? Like it's so it's like, because now if I have a ship, I know how big a container is. I know how many containers I can put on it. If I have a truck, I can put it on the truck and not hit the bottom of a bridge because the guy that made the bridge knows how high to make the bridge because, you know, and that way we don't have to have an IOT sensor on the top of the container on the top of the truck to make sure we don't smash the bridge. That's (laughs) right. But but like, but if an entrepreneur says I'm going to do containers version 2.0, smart containers, if they're different dimensions, it fails the test. Because now I don't know what bridges it's going to crash into when the truck drives under the bridge or what ships it might sink or what like, or is it going to fit on the ship? Right. And so to me, part of what's profound about AI and just software in general is I think we might be moving to a world where there's value in standardization. This is why I'm such a Bitcoin zealot too, and why I don't think they should change it as much as some people think it should. Like the ability to know exactly what you're dealing with is empowering because it creates consensus and it, and, and the consensus that everybody's going to put wheels on cars the same way massively reduces friction compared to if everybody, imagine if every country in the entire world had a different light socket format, a different way to plug things in. It's, it's bad enough that it's not the same already everywhere, but it's certainly good that it's for the most part, we've agreed. Like if somebody comes out and says, I'm doing socket 2.0 now, it's better None of your stuff's going to work. None of the stuff you've ever plugged into anything's ever going to work with it. But that's a minor detail because it's like better. Like that's not so good, right? So like I think AI, when I think of the models, I think we might see some of that, uh, which kind of gets me to another thought. In the early days of SaaS, we invested in a company called Okta. And Okta does single sign-on for multiple cloud apps. And the reason I liked their business was they were what I like to say, credibly neutral. So it, you know, you don't want to have Salesforce manage your identity across all cloud apps because some of your cloud apps come from Microsoft or Dropbox or Oracle or whoever. Same is true of Microsoft. So I thought some startup is going to say, I'm Switzerland and I don't care who wins. And I'm like, that startup could prosper because all you have to believe is that the cloud is going to prosper. You don't have to care who wins the cloud wars. You just have to believe that there's going to be more cloud stuff. And so some of the some of the AI startups I'm looking at are those where it doesn't matter which model wins, doesn't matter which uh, LLM. It, like the only thing that you care about is will there be more of it and will it be better, and is it a rising tide that that lifts your boat no matter who wins, and that you're able to say, look, I don't care if OpenAI wins, I don't care if Microsoft, Google, DeepMind, Inflection, whatever, I don't care. Whenever they introduce something innovative into the ecosystem my solution has network effects, more value to it. You know, it became valuable for every cloud app to integrate with Okta single sign-on because they could then say there's tens of thousands of products that just plug right in. And it's like the, the, the more the more adoption of cloud there was, the more valuable their network was. So that's kind of another thought. And then another one that I think you might like is um, this this idea, and it gets back to the idea of deflation, you said it on your podcast a few weeks ago that what AI does is it makes previously discovered knowledge less valuable and it makes newly acquired knowledge more valuable. Because if 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 your job depends on classifying previously described knowledge, you didn't use these exact words, but I would assert that the value of the job you're doing deflates, right? It deflates because it's commoditized. It's the same way as Oracle is more expensive than MySQL. 
And so, so like I got to thinking, okay, this is why I think AI might engender a new wave of, you know, the lamp stack equivalent lean startup kind of startup conditions. Because when you think about it, there are aspects of sales, there are aspects of marketing, there are aspects of customer support, there are aspects of product development that don't require new knowledge, that that have a, have a playbook, that have a checklist. And those things, in theory, the cost of those should be collapsed within, in an AI world. And so that's what I'm kind of interested in, right? Like anything, anything where the knowledge about how to do it exists, I believe we'll, we'll see extraordinary deflation. Uh, and, and that will yes. be good for people who play offense with respect to that trend. Well, and, and look, we saw, of course, we saw this with the internet, but this yep. in my mind will increase or accelerate the democratization of information. That is to say, we can ask ChatGPT anything we want, and and it's going to give us a pretty compelling answer. And I think what people are starting to understand is that this isn't, can OpenAI, Microsoft beat Google in search? That's not what's right. going on. It's, will answer, supplant search as the most valuable thing on the internet. And I think the answer to that question is very clear. As a matter of fact, the more you use ChatGPT, the more irritating Google becomes when you're looking for answer. Yeah, and I think that that what I what I like about your kind of framing of it through the knowledge lens is that you could argue that at the limit, any prior discovered knowledge will be available ver- via a digital assistant, and like uh, it'll be answerable via a digital assistant, and not just when you query it, but when your technology algorithms query it, machine to machine. And so like that, that fascinates me because I think that that has even more profound implications on how startups might be built than the lamp stack did. Yes. And, and, you know, and so people thought the lamp stack, the mistake people made was they thought I, I should have a lamp stack product. And, and yes, there will be AI enabled products that are radically superior and exciting, but like, you know, you could, you could use AI as a, as a new go to market stack to go after an existing product category with a low end disruptive innovation. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't know what the incumbents would do because they might have a huge preference stack. They might have a huge cost structure that, you know, they've just, they've got a bunch of stuff invested in how they price the product, how they go to market, how they employ people, uh, you know, how, what their, what their return profile needs to make their investors happy. Some of them, I, I, I don't know what you do if you raise money in late 2021 and, you know, you had this inflated valuation, you've raised hundreds of millions of dollars and there's no path to you being worth the amount of money you even raised, much less, right. you know, what you thought you were worth. Right. And if I was a startup founder, I'd say, hey, why don't I, why don't I go tackle that category where there's already explicit product market fit? And, you know, do what, do what Dell did to Compaq, you know, so like Compaq has to make the whole PC and ship it to a dealer. Dell takes your order on demand from a website and assembles it on the fly. So they have fresher chips, fresher memory. They know exactly what you want. They don't have to worry about whether they sell it or not. It never sits on the shelf. Their inventory turns are just like super fast. Well, and and I love how everything old is new again. And so back in the old days, that what you just described was called disintermediation right right we're going to take intermediaries out of a supply chain because the internet allows us to go direct and we disintermediate the dealer 
and ultimately Compact, Compact gets uh, sold to HP for a song and Dell becomes a darling until it's not, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> but yes. Yeah. Uh, so here's the interesting question about that. Okay, so we hear a lot um, about how do I how do I build a moat around my business to protect it and grow my business? And of course, we view category design in large part as a way of helping to create a, a massive moat. Point A. Point B, here's an aha that I'm curious if you think people are getting. I, I, I don't, I, when I talk to people, particularly outside of Silicon Valley, their, their heads explode with this one, which is the following. Today in AI, we describe data sets as, quote, training data, because mm -hmm. that's the data that the AI model gets trained on so that when you ask it questions and it gives you answers, it's pulling from that data that goes through the model. So the aha then is anybody with an interesting or semi-valuable data store might now be sitting on radically valuable training data. Right. And I'll give you two examples. Our friend Gina Bianchini at Mighty Networks. Well, my understanding is she's the category queen in kind of uh, community content courses, et cetera. Not sure what yeah. she's calling the category right now. But if you want to build a community online with content and training and webinars and all that good stuff, she's it, right? So uh, she's got two things going on. One, she just launched this thing called Mighty Host, which is an AI-powered uh, easy up and on capability. So one of the challenges to her growth was starting a community is too hard. So essentially she's created an AI assistant to make starting a community shit simple. And she's okay. doing a whole bunch of other things with AI, but here's the big aha. She's got all these communities from some of the biggest people, Ted and Tony Robbins and all this stuff. And she can now use AI or she can now use that data as to, as to what's happening in all of these thousands and thousands of high-profile digital communities. She can use that as training data. Yes. And that training data can help her with product development and so forth and so on. She can package and, and sell some of that training data in an anonymized way. And probably most importantly, if I'm TED and I'm running some component of my TED business on my Mighty Network, I can then use the training data in the TED Mighty network to do incredible yep. things with AI. Second example I've had more recently is uh, my friend Andy Byrne at Clary. You know, they're the leading, there's a whole bunch of companies in the quote unquote revenue space and they've emerged as kind of what appears to be the leader of the category king in, in, in the revenue platform business. Well, <laughs> they, they, uh, <laughs> they told me that and they have, I don't know, over a thousand, I'm not sure how many customers, but a, a meaningful number of customers. Well, guess what? They said to me one day, um, we have over a trillion dollars of revenue under management. And so they have, across these thousand plus companies, all their forecast information. So they have woken up and realized we have a trillion dollars worth of revenue forecast training data. 
So they create and launch this thing called Rev GPT, Revenue GPT. And uh, Andy says something like, <laughs> Chat GPT is your smart cousin and Rev GPT is your cousin that makes all the money. <laughs> anyway, the point being, as a result of AI slash Chat GPT, these two companies wake up and realize, holy shit, we have a massive amount of training data that is proprietary, that is already part of a data flywheel moat that we've created that's valuable both to us and to our customers. And now when you smart when you do smart AI shit on top of it, um, you build an even further moat. Because if you're Andy, you get to say, hey, listen, we got a trillion dollars worth of revenue data under management that we're now using as training data. If you're Gina, you now get to say, we're the category queen of uh, digital communities. And that's now training data for AI, and we can exploit that data to help grow our business, and we can help our customers grow their communities by exploiting their own AI training data. And so this leads me to this question, which is, are enough people waking up and thinking about their data in, a, in this new context as valuable training data? And, and are there startup opportunities here? I, I think they're starting to, and, and you know, Unfortunately, I've got to run to my next thing, but I want to, I want to leave you with something. Maybe we pick this conversation up. You know, your podcast is about being different, you know, finding your different, leaning into your difference. Only people who are different can make a difference. And what we just said, kind of like, maybe I'm being too, too much of a D versus D about it, but like, I think in AI, you can capitalize on the fact that you have different knowledge or you can capitalize on the fact that all other knowledge can be disintermediated. And so like, I think you can make money both ways, right? You could make money by having different knowledge and unlocking the value of that different knowledge and realizing that you must keep it different to differentiate. Or you can say all known knowledge is becoming undifferentiated, which means it could be disintermediated. Like I think we should. There's some good stuff there. We right. should pick so you up can on be that. Dell. We pick up on that. You can be Dell. Yeah. What Dell did to Compaq, or yeah. you could create the smartphone with the iPhone. That's right. That's right. You could be a low-end disruptive innovation by selling to non-consumers who wouldn't have been able to afford the more expensive thing, and then moving up the stack of value and disrupting the incumbents with a superior cost model, or you can compete based on category design, totally different knowledge that nobody else has, proprietary, um, and, and both can work and both can lead to category design outcomes, right? Um, and yeah. my guess is being in the middle is the shit spot. Yeah, you got, I think you got to commit be, one be, end or the other, right? You have to commit, you have to, like all your AI strategies, I believe have to either uh, create value through your unique difference or by your ability to disintermediate what once would have been expensive, but now commodity. Mike, this is great. Talk to you soon. Love you, brother. There he is, my buddy, Mike Maples Jr. You can find him at floodgate.com. That's floodgate, all one word, dot com. And Mike is a great follow on Twitter. Very super thoughtful guy. His Twitter handle is M2JR, m 2 JR. And uh, as you know, word of mouth is, was, and always will be the most powerful form of marketing. And we love your WOM. And we especially love your digital WOM. So please, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with some people that you love. And uh, we love your social media 
Digital WOM. All right, we would like to thank, we would like to thank you very much for your time and attention. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. It means everything to me and all of us involved in getting uh, Follow Your Different out to you. Don't forget to go to Amazon.com and pick up your copy of Snow Leopard and learn how to create legendary content that ChatGPT cannot copy. It's a number one bestseller for a reason, Snow Leopard, how legendary writers create a category of one on Amazon.com today. My friends at Play Bigger Advisors are the OGs of category design. Learn how to create new growth and radical differentiation today at playbigger.com. That's playbigger, all one word, dot com. And if you're in the B2B business in Silicon Valley and you want a legendary website, check out my friends at Atrenet. That's A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. They've been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 25 years. Atre.net. My friends at Interview Valet are the way you get your leading thoughts on leading podcasts. So check out interviewvalet.com. You know, it's interesting. I, I know this might sound crazy to you, but I still think podcasts are one of the, the most underutilized both advertising platforms and thought leadership platforms. And so no matter what you're doing, if you want your leading thoughts out there in the world, either start a podcast or get on a podcast. And the best way to get on legendary podcasts is interviewvalet.com. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All episodes do contain nuts. Please don't forget to contact your lawyer, doctor, shaman, mystic, therapist, yoga instructor, and category designer before acting on anything you heard in today's episode. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check him out. His podcast is called Grumpy Old Geeks. And, you know, I swear to God, they're getting funnier and grumpier over time. So if you're a little grumpy and you love technology, check out Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do our technical execution around here, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon, the Bobus Brothers, RJ and EX do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Whedon Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. We record all these episodes on squadcast.fm in Dolby ADHD technology. Uh, if you want to drop us a note, you can send email to blackhole at lockhead.com. You want to hang out on LinkedIn or Twitter, Christopher Lockhead on LinkedIn and Lockhead, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D um, on Twitter. <laughs> All right. Lizzo was right. Listen to Leonard Cohen. Please teach entrepreneurship. Remember, the left-hand lane is for people who are going somewhere. Get out of the left-hand lane. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Elizabeth Holmes, former CEO of Theranos. Sorry, Lizzie. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. We deeply appreciate it. Stay safe. Stay legendary. And until we get to hang out again, follow your difference.